I showed up to preach at a church uh, one Sunday morning, and I had to drive quite a, a ways to get there, so I'd been up early, and I'd been diligent and prepared my message, and as I got in, I checked in with the associate pastor, doing all the formalities there, and uh, <clears throat> he looked at me and said, have you prepared a song? I said, excuse me? Uh, he said, have you prepared a song? And I, and I said, no, you mispronounced sermon. Um, I've, I've not prepared a song. <laughs> well, it turns out the, the former pastor had been uh, keen on delivering a song himself on Sunday mornings and asked if I wanted to do the same, and I politely declined. Um, but I cannot tell you the fear that entered my heart <laughs> when I thought I would have to sing. I've been trained in many things, but singing is not one of them. So there's that. Um, I also have to say I feel a little bit like I'm in a boy band with this mic. Um, that's, this is a new thing for me. I'm used to it down here. All right. Um, I do want to uh, thank you for letting me preach. And I also want to, he's not here, is he? Chris? Okay. He said he might sneak in. Uh, I do want to take the time uh, and, and just have us uh, be thankful for Chris. Uh, he is a phenomenal pastor. He has a wonderful heart. Um, and it is... Uh, it is hard for him to get up here week after week and deliver the caliber of sermon that he does deliver. So uh, keep him in your prayers, uh, and he's enjoying a good respite this week. All right, today we're going to be in the book of Romans. We're going to be in chapter 12. Uh, we're actually going to be starting at the very end of 11. So depending on how your Bibles are laid out, we're going to be at the very end of 11 and going into uh, chapter 12, verse 2. Romans is probably one of the more theologically complex books we have in the New Testament. Uh, it's written by Paul. It is a letter, but it's a theological treatise wrapped up in the form of a letter. Paul, up to this point, uh, very likely had not been to Rome to meet these Christians. And there's a question of who founded the church at Rome. Uh, some say it was, you know, Paul through a proxy. Some say it was Peter, and Peter was certainly at one point at least a prominent uh, member or leader in Rome. But we can't place Peter in Rome soon enough to have uh, started the church for it to be as big as it was. And Paul even says that his primary mission is to go to places where the gospel had not been preached yet. So he was on his way to Spain. Uh, when he writes this, and he's very likely in Corinth at the time of the writing. But he takes a lot of time developing many themes uh, in, this, in this book, in this letter, but probably the primary one that we can focus on as believers is it's the gospel. What he wants these readers, these Romans, to hear is the gospel. He's laying it out in a way that is very easy to understand, although hard, in some spots, but not impossible. Martin Luther called the book of Romans the very purest gospel. The book of Romans is really what set him on a path uh, that ultimately changed the world, where he understood that it is not his own works that justifies him, but Christ's works that justify us. So Romans has had a big impact on a lot of Christians throughout history. Again, with the many different kinds of themes we can come across, we really need to focus in on the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul is most concerned about. And we see this in his other letters. The one thing he constantly preaches is what? Christ and him crucified. And this is what we get to see in a very expanded form in the book of Romans. The first 11 chapters, and by the way, the book of Romans is actually, a, it's a fairly long letter. Uh, if you think about it, we, we see this as a book. You know, it's the book of Romans. But really, this is a letter. So if you've written, does anybody write letters anymore? Um, if, you're, if you're writing a letter or taking notes, it's a lot of writing. Okay, this is a lot of words. So he's, he sees this as an important endeavor. Okay? Uh, for the first 11 chapters, he's systematically walking the readers through a case for God's mercy. He's pointing out our own sin. And then he's building you up and bringing to the point where you can finally understand that his mercy comes through a man, and that man is Jesus Christ. So he brings you there, and then he begins to tell you, what is the practical outworking of this? I've given you all this knowledge. You understand now the magnificence of God. You understand the beauty in his grace. What do you do with it? The word there is praxis, 
What is the praxis of all this knowledge? So starting in chapter 11, we get to see what that outworking is. So if you would go ahead and turn with me. And let's read it out loud. I'm going to start in 11.33, and we'll go all the way to 12.2. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, if you care to know. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Far from him, I'm sorry, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I mean, that's a solid benediction in itself right there. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Please pray with me. Father, we think about who you are and our minds always come to a stopping place where we have ideas of who you are and we see just shadows of your glory, whispers of your magnificence. But Father, we know who our brother is, Jesus Christ, and we know the model of which we are conformed. God, I pray that as we move through this text, as we learn more about your magnificence and what it means to present ourselves as a sacrifice, to give our whole selves in worship, that you would fill our hearts with that knowledge so that when we go out and we step out of these doors, we understand what it means to serve you and we understand what it means to be able to preach and teach and discuss the gospel, that we are about the Bible that it is the first thing on our minds when we wake up and the last thing on our minds when we go to sleep. Father, I pray that this word would fill hearts, that you would use my words to bring glory to yourself. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Christianity is one of the only religions, really, that doesn't demand that we empty ourselves. We, we're not commanded to you know, become blank slates we're not commanded to uh, conform to a particular set of, uh, you know, rules uh, or, or leaders. And, and there certainly are guidelines and there certainly are standards in the Christian life, but they're not rules that always must be followed. Um, and they are also generally rules that are just good living. I think everybody can agree that uh, they don't want their stuff stolen and they're probably not going to steal other people's things and so on. But what Christianity does demand is that we fill our minds with truth. And that truth comes through, again, one man, and that truth is Jesus Christ. So what do we do with that truth, and what does that mean when our minds are emptied of sinful thoughts in the world, and it is, over time, progressively filled with truth? You think of a, you know, a pitcher of water or a bucket of water, right? What's in an empty bucket? It's air. There's actually air in an empty bucket. And as you fill it with water, the air becomes pushed out and it fills with water. So technically, glasses are always full of something. But we fill our minds just like that. We push out what is bad and we fill it with the truth of Christ. And this is what Paul is getting at here. He spends time in the latter part of 11 here, and this is why I read it. He's telling you just how magnificent the mind of God is. Now, of course, we can't be just like God, but we can seek after that. We can push ourselves to fill our minds with that knowledge. And that's what Paul's getting at. In Scripture, the heart and the mind are synonymous. So when we talk about, I love you from the bottom of my heart, you really are loving somebody with your mind. Love is a choice, and that's a whole other sermon. But... In scripture, it's the same. You are a whole person. You are a soul. So you're not, you know, it's, uh, 
<laughs> it's not like men in black, where your soul is in your body driving your flesh around, okay? Uh, you are a soul, and your soul is comprised of your soul and your flesh and your mind, and you, you act as a whole. You act wholly with this. And God is saying, use this to my glory, but he's also saying, I am sovereign over you. I am sovereign over your mind. I am sovereign over your heart. Things like our ego, um, our intellect, our emotions, aspirations, our decision-making. He is saying, I am sovereign over these things too because I am sovereign over you. So when we're thinking about filling our minds, when we're thinking about transforming our minds, we have to keep this, we have to keep this in focus. The Greeks had a concept uh, called nous, uh, N-O-U-S. And it really was kind of an all-encompassing idea uh, of the faculty of the human mind. And Paul uses this readily. Paul, uh, he grew up a Roman citizen. Uh, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, as we all know. But he was very well steeped in Greek culture. He was very educated and very well steeped in Greek philosophy. And he would often turn and use these to uh, bridge the gap, as it were between unbelief and belief. And he would never liken Christianity, he would never liken Christ to these other thoughts, these other philosophies, but he would use them to create a bridge. When you have to get somebody from point A to point B, you have to sometimes use something a little bit foreign to bridge the gap and then bring them to that point. And that's what Paul uses here. He uses this idea of noose and says, look, you're to use your all-encompassing intellect and transform that and then you can begin to see the magnificence of Christ. So that's how we're set up. As believers, we have the gift and the benefit of the Holy Spirit. So when we read scripture, when we open up our Bibles, uh, you read it and you have a certain level of understanding. Although you might not fully comprehend the depth of the gospel, and you might not fully understand the legal intricacies of what it meant for Christ to die on the cross, you can understand that you are a sinner and you need a savior. This makes sense to you. An unbeliever, however, what we would say is unregenerate, they do not have the benefit of the Holy Spirit. So this is why you can look at the world and they have trouble understanding even the concept of why they would need a savior. Savior from what? I'm just fine, I do good things, or maybe I don't do good things, but why does it matter? Who cares, right? And this is what Paul is saying, is by the renewal of your mind, which happens when you believe in Christ through faith, there's a shift, there's a change. And it's gradual. You don't just you know, know everything right away. The Bible just doesn't make complete and utter sense. But we see, as a matter of fact, after Christ went uh, after he, you know, he, he rose into the clouds and you know, he went back in to sit at the right hand of the Father, what did he promise the disciples who then became apostles? He promised that I will bring to you remembrance and that will come through the Holy Spirit. And the, uh, in Greek, it's paraclete, to come alongside. So I will bring you that remembrance. And the Holy Spirit does the same thing for us. Now, we don't remember the experiences, but the Holy Spirit brings remembrance of Scripture to us. So... Don't take that for granted. You have the benefit of understanding Scripture through and through the benefit of the Holy Spirit. So don't ever forget that. Paul wants to point out here the riches of God's mind. And I don't know if you've ever thought of that. Like, you ever thought about how magnificent God's mind is? It comes to me when I go to the zoo. <laughs> the zoo is full of animals, but very interesting things. You know, I was at Publix last night with, uh, with my son and we were walking through the, you know, the, the seafood section and they had the tank of lobsters, right? So you gotta go look at the lobsters. And you know, as we're sitting there and we're looking at them, and I'm thinking, man, these are ugly, but they taste good. You know, and, and, and Killian is, is, he's just focused, you know, and he's, he's noticing the different color bands on the claws and he's noticing that, you know, they, the legs and they have the little things at their mouth and, but I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm like, how do you make this up? Like, how do you conceive of a lobster, right? 
I mean, it's, it's not a fish. It's not a, what is it, you know? But God did this in creation for all kinds of animals. And you kind of really get to see it in insects. Insects, eh, I'm not down with insects, but he, he created those. His mind was so rich and so creative. And then there's us, which is the pinnacle of creation. So he conceived of and created us for his glory. So the mind of God is vast, and it is rich, and it is perfect, and it is inscrutable. It's unsearchable, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. When we say something like, his ways are not our ways, that is 100% true, but it doesn't mean we can't strive to get there. Uh, If you're in my Sunday school class, I say all the time, difficult does not equal impossible. Think about that. Difficult does not equal impossible. You might look at me and see that I'm young, and I hope you look at me and see that I'm young. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and say, well, you know, your generation, you know, has it easy. And if it's not, you know, easy on the first try, you just quit. And certainly I think every generation does that uh, with the previous and the former. Um, and, you know, of course, my children look at me like I'm an old fuddy-duddy because I just keep repeating myself. But here's the thing. Just because something is hard the first time doesn't mean you give up. We do this in sports. We do this in our hobbies. Uh, We certainly should be doing this in our marriage. Uh, Just because it's hard doesn't mean you give up. We see this all the time. Uh, It's played out very, very profoundly in Hollywood. Um, You see people like, oh, they're so cute together, and, you know, they may stay married or together for a time, but they hit a breaking point because they choose to give up because it's too difficult. They think it's impossible, all right? So difficult is not impossible. Culture is changing more rapidly now than perhaps any other time in modern history. Uh, Again, in my Sunday school class, we go over this a lot. Uh, You know, things like, you know, sexual perversions, wanton hatred, um, uh, government corruption, glorifying the self, I mean, you name it, they've always been around. Jesus dealt with them in his time. Uh, It was certainly around in times prior to that, and it's certainly around now. So why is it more prevalent, or why does it seem more prevalent now than in the past? Well, it's because the values have caught up with the morals, and people just aren't trying to hide it anymore. It's It's no longer embarrassing to participate in certain behaviors or certain acts. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, (laughs) this past election cycle, I think, taught us a lot about uh, people. It taught us a lot about our country in general is, I mean, for the most part, nobody wanted to vote for anybody, right? Because nobody liked the options available. But what that proved is, you know, uh, with the example of government corruption is just nobody tries to hide anything anymore. There's no modesty. There's no shame. And I think that's probably the number one thing when you think about culture in and of itself is there's just no more hiding. I had a buddy send me a message, and he was, he was pointing to an article about um, a, a social justice warrior, an advocate, who was basically railing against the idea that we would assign birth at gender, or I'm sorry, assign gender at birth. So baby comes out. We've, most of us have done this. It's either a boy or a girl. And the reason she said this is because the, the child, the baby, the infant, minutes old, um, could not articulate for themselves what they were, so we should not do it for them. And he was very upset about this. And he's like, man, it's just, I don't even know what to do anymore. And I said, I kind of feel like it's just a running joke at this point. Like everybody's just trying to see how far they can push this joke before people crack. Uh, but again, culture is changing rapidly um, only because it's coming to the forefront. We're not dealing with it on the fringes of culture. We're dealing with it in the mainstream. We're dealing with it in parades. We're dealing with it on the news. We're dealing with it in schools. So yes, we do have a particularly difficult era to live in, but it's not unknown to Christ. And it's not a surprise to God either. I mean, this isn't, we're not on like plan C or D. We're on plan J, which is Jesus. It's always been the plan. It's going to continue to be the plan until he comes back and fulfills the plan. But it's all there. It's all promised. 
It's all a given for us. Our focus is not to try to fix the world as such. Sometimes the world will be fixed through the efforts of Christians, and other times the world is just going to continue on its way. Jesus never says we're going to make everything perfect. It's like when, you're, when you get a phone call and you're, you know, your in-laws are coming over, you hurry up and you know, fly to the bumblebees, you know, scramble to clean the house. This is not what we're doing, okay? We are ready. We are, we are staying ready for Christ to come back. We're, we're trying to maintain the house, as it were, okay? We're trying to maintain our hearts and our lives, but it's never going to be spotless. He doesn't expect it to be spotless. He knows it can't be spotless, okay? And Jesus knows the struggle against the flesh. He understands where we are. He certainly understands the culture. The culture was corrupt in his day. The culture was evil in his day. Certainly the Son of God uh, having the opportunity to be murdered, uh, I, that would count as evil. Okay, so don't think that we live in a particularly corrupt society. It's always been that way. We just get to see it uh, in the front line, on the front pages. Okay, so what do we do with this? We, we've defined what our culture is is when, when Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, to this age, to this culture, but, but renew yourselves. Make your minds like that of Christ and present yourselves as a pure offering, a pure worship. What is that? What is pure worship? We often hear, uh, you know, you're supposed to be praying continually. You're supposed to be worshiping continually. And if you're like me, you're like, I just can't sing that much. But singing is not the only form of worship, and praying is not the only form of worship. But we can be carrying ourselves in a worshipful manner. So let's look at what that is. Before Christ, when we were unbelievers, and, and if you're an unbeliever in here, you're this way too, and you can be mad at me, but that's all right. Our whims and our wills are in the wind. It's just moving around wherever the wind takes us. We have no direction. We have no goal. We, sure, we have small goals here and there, places we want to do, you know, we want to get to and all that, but we don't have a big goal. We're just moving around as the wind takes us. And we don't have the wherewithal or even the desire to control our sin. And this is what we see played out in culture. There's no desire to even pretend to be, you know, something other than what you are anymore. As Christians, we become syncretistic with Christ in the world. And let me, let me explain what that is. Syncretism is when you take two unlike objects, usually, uh, this usually deals with religion, and you try to combine them. So we see this often on the mission field where Christianity is brought into a place and the full breadth of the gospel is there, but then whoever's there, they want to try to combine it with what they know, with what's already uh, comfortable for them. Perhaps they're embarrassed to fully latch on to Christ. Uh, maybe uh, there's you know, peer pressure that's going on and they don't know, quite know what to do. We do that here in America as well. We, we might fully understand the scope and the breadth of the gospel message. And, and through faith, our hearts and our minds are changed and we believe. But then we still have this culture that is just pounding and pounding and pounding at our doors. And we can't get away from it. You can't go very far without seeing uh, imagery that turns your mind away. You can't go very far without, uh, you know, some kind of cultural nuance that turns your mind from Christ. We have a plethora, we have untold distractions here in America. And you got sports. You've got life, you've got jobs, you've got family, uh, you've got you know, all, the, all the entrapments there that might come with those things. And so we're turned. You wake up in the morning, you wipe the crust out of your eyes, you, know, you wash your face, maybe you grab a bite to eat, maybe you don't, and you're off to work and you sit in traffic for a while. And then you go to work and you sit at a desk and you use the mouse for a while. You go to work and you turn the wrench for a while. Or you go to work and you shovel ditches for a while. And then you get back in the car and you sit in traffic and then you go home and you try to spend some quality time with your kids, but you're so beat that you can't hardly think about it. And so you turn on the TV and you have them sit there with you and you guys just mindlessly zone out. 
until it's time for dinner, and then you sit at the dinner table, and maybe you don't sit at the dinner table. And then it's time for bed, and so maybe you read a story, maybe you read the Bible, maybe you do family devotion, maybe you don't. And then you go to bed, and you wake up, and you do it again. It's really easy to become trapped in really kind of a survival mode of life to where you're not, you're just kind of going with the stream, you're going with the flow, and there's a famous saying that only dead fish go with the flow. And so you're kind of just floating along and meandering in life, and you're not using your time to focus on what matters. You're not using your time to focus on Christ. Because what is our imperative as Christians? I mean, is it just fire insurance? Did we, did we believe through faith in this magnificent happening, this one-time advent in all of history that literally changed the world and, and earth itself changed? And then we just go about our lives as we were? No. Heaven forbid. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to actually continue that. So when you see a new believer and they've got this fire in their hearts and they are just ready to go and conquer the world, but they're a little misguided because they don't quite know what to do yet. And so you bring them along and you're like, man, you're on fire for Jesus, but you need to cool it a little bit. A little bit, cool it. No, 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 no. That's more in line with how we want to behave as believers. And that's what Christ is saying, or that's what Paul is saying, is don't bend to culture. Don't get yourself caught in this trap of life, as it were, but understand your mandate, which is to go and preach the word, is to go and make disciples. This is where he's going. He warns us here not to be two-faced about worship as well. So when he says that if we renew our minds, that this becomes a form of pure worship. So what is pure worship? Again, is it, is it the constantly you know, being Pollyanna and I'm just so happy about everything and if that's you, that's cool. That's not me, I can't do that. Uh, is it, again, you know, just constantly carrying around your Bible as if you're going to learn it you know, by osmosis? You're just gonna you know, hold it tight like a security blanket? That's okay. You can. It's, this is America. You're free to do that and be thankful for that. What Paul is saying is your pure worship is when your whole self, your whole self, which includes your mind, is given to him. Now, obviously, you all woke up and you showed up here today. That's a form of worship, right? You set aside what you wanted to do today if you're like me, which is sleep, you wanted to sleep in, right? So you set that aside and you woke up and you got your kids here, and, which is probably the hardest thing in the world to do. Um, and you're here as a form of worship. But your mind isn't necessarily here. Your mind is on other things. Your mind is on lunch. Your mind is on the games that are coming on. Your mind is on what you have to do tomorrow. You have to get back to work. You've been off for four days. Man, I have a lot of email. What am I going to do? I have to answer all these. I'm not going to answer any of them. I'll just wait till Wednesday. If it's important, they'll write back. Right? So your mind could be in any one of different places. But he's saying, no, that's the part I want. I want your heart, which is your mind. I want your affections. I want your focus. I want you to focus on me. So that's what Paul is pointing to us here. He gives us the gravity of God's mind, and then he redirects us and says, seek after that, be like that, give your whole self as an act of worship, and this is pure. Christians are responsible really for the inward and the outward. Okay, it's the whole. So again, you can show up and you can, you can serve you know, breakfast or lunch. You can you know, come to church work days and you can paint buildings. You can serve in the nursery. You can be sitting in these pews. You can you know, show up every time the doors are open, but that doesn't necessarily mean your heart is there. It doesn't mean your mind is there. You're just, you're just filling the time, right? What you do, do it unto the Lord. What you do is a form of worship. Make it matter. Realize it. Understand that what you're doing is meant to glorify God. God doesn't need you to show up and paint a wall. It's not important to him. 
What's important is how and why you're doing it. That is what's necessary as a pure form of worship. Romans 12 bears uh, certain similarities to the Sermon on the Mount. And this is an aside, but it's important for you to know. A lot of scholars are, I guess they, they're torn, um, especially secular scholars. And they say that Paul is only concerned with uh, the post resurrection Christ. That is after he ascended, okay? And what they're implying there, and what you may not realize, is they're saying he has very little knowledge of Christ's earthly preaching and ministry. What they're also implying is that Paul was trying to establish his own religion, which we call Christianity, okay? But Paul's clever. (laughs) Holy Spirit saw this coming. So Paul constantly, by the way, hearkens back to Christ's actual preaching. And what he's doing here in Romans 12 is he's hearkening back to Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. And he's giving direct teachings and direct bridges between the two. So in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, one of the two key features that we see, there's many, um, is Jesus talks about lust and he talks about anger. And what does he say? If you are angry in your heart, if you have murder in your heart, it is the same as if you had murdered. Now, obviously, the person is still alive if it's only in your heart. But what he's saying is the sin is the same, right? He's narrowing the definitions. He's saying, I'm not going to let you get by with looking the part. You are the part. If you're going to follow me, it's all in or nothing, And he does the same thing with lust. If you've committed adultery in your mind, you've committed adultery in life. Again, the sins to us aren't equal. But he says, it's all sin. It's all dirt. I don't want dirt. Keep your dirt. You give me everything. And this is what Paul's going back to. So when he says that we're not bending to the world, we're bending to Christ, right? If we're going to use the analogy of the, of the potter and the clay, we don't become part of the spinning table. It's probably a word for that, okay? We don't become part of that. We bend and we are molded by what? The potter's hands. That is what makes our shape. And that's what Paul's going back to. So we're responsible for not just the inward or I'm sorry, not just the outward, but the inward as well. And this is important. We don't think about this. I know we don't. We get caught up in the trappings of life, and we want to look the part, but it's very hard to get it right up here. And let me switch that. It's very hard to get it right here, right? As if the organ is the source of emotion, but you know what I'm saying. Sin involves following our own purposes. So again, we may want to look the part. We may want to be a cultural Christian, which was very popular, you know, back in the 40s, 50s, and up to the mid-60s. Culture, American culture changed and shifted permanently at the end of the 60s with the sexual revolution, right? Up until that point, we really were living in like an old-timey Coca-Cola commercial, but it changed, and it's never going back. So in a culture that serves itself, in a culture that refuses to recognize sin, in a culture that will tell you you can be whatever it is you want to be, and matter of fact, you can even define what that is, Jesus says, no. I am the pattern. I am the form. You're just passing through this place. Don't conform to it. Don't be a part of it. Bend to me. I will bring you through. Let's keep that in mind. So how do we know what it means to be transformed, right? And and to flip the question, how do we know what the will of God is? This is a big question. When When I was in high school, when I was in college, everybody was praying the will of God in their life. I'm just waiting for the will of God. I want to know what God's will for my life is. And what they were really saying is, I don't know what major to choose. I don't, 
I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know who to marry, if I should marry. And this is, this is what they were, they're not wrong in that, right? These are all choices we have to make in life. But what they were failing to see is God has one will for your life. Now, he certainly has a plan and a design and a path that he has set you on. And you will reach the end of that path through him. But God's will for your life is just one thing. I feel like I'm on, like that, what's that movie? The one thing? Um, but it's one thing, and it's obedience to his son and submission to the gospel. That's God's one will for your life. Again, many different plans, many different patterns for your life. But when we're talking about God's will, don't ever be confused that you're a snowflake. There is one thing to do in your life, and that is submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That is the will. So when we're talking about transforming our minds, when we're talking about understanding the mind of God and, and how we even get from, from where we are to the point where we are in submission to him, we have to understand that it starts with Christ. Or it's nothing. Or it's, it's for naught. We get nowhere. We're just spinning our wheels and we're just floating along the river, aimlessly going here and there and bouncing back and forth and never really accomplishing anything in your life because you've not submitted to him. There's this idea that, uh, you know, you can, you can be a Christian and you can completely live in the world and you can make that work for you. And it's, that's, that's a lie. That's a lie. And I'm not saying you can't enjoy, I mean, we're enjoying this air conditioning. Some of you are not enjoying the air conditioning. But we're enjoying this air conditioning. We're enjoying electricity. I'm enjoying wearing these clothes. Uh, I'm enjoying talking to you. You're all here. Most of you drove here in vehicles. Uh, we have cool weather outside. We have beautiful nature outside. We have, you know, the various accoutrements of life. And that's not to say you can't enjoy those things, but do not let them become you. Are you defined by the size of your television? I mean, not like everybody has, you know, these anymore. Are you defined by the car that you drive? Are you defined by your job? Are you defined by your hobbies? Are you defined by your spouse? Are you defined by your children? What are you defined by? Because there's just one thing you should be defined by. If you find your identity outside of Christ, there's going to be pain. There's going to be disappointment because culture was never set up to satisfy you. Culture is set up to entertain you. Culture is set up to distract you. The world will distract you. That's what it does. Sometimes, sometimes it's a nice distraction. A lot of times it's a nice distraction. But don't let the world pull you from your mandate. And your mandate is the one thing, which is the submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to sacrifice our bodies? Well, does that, when you, think about, when you think about sacrifice, you think about the Old Testament, you think about the priests and their regalia and, you know, and their, the animals are coming in and they're sacrificing. You think about all the different various types of sacrifice. And I think, too, in a sense, you know, at least for me, I mean, when I buy my food, um, I don't have to kill it, right? There's some people that here I hunt. I know you hunt. But for most of us, when we buy our groceries, we don't go to the back of the store and kill it and drain it and, and do all that, right? We don't pluck feathers when we buy chicken. So the idea of animal sacrifice, you know, farm life, animal husbandry, um, it's a little bit foreign to us. But when you think about a sacrifice, you are submitting yourself, just like Christ, as a whole offering. You're not submitting part of you, right? The animal didn't, I mean, they didn't cut off the leg of a lamb and sacrifice that and send him on his way. It was the whole thing. It's all or nothing. So as a Christian, when you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, I have faith that he is my Lord and my God, that he is the Son of God, and you, and you catechize and you go through all this and you truly do believe. Are you submitting all of you to him or just part? He can have three quarters of my mind, but this part's mine. 
This is the part that I do things that I want to do. This is the part where I do activities or I think thoughts. This is my secret place up here. Wrong. There's no secrets with Jesus. He knows it all. And he wants it all. He wants all of you. Give him all of you. Stop bending to the world. I think Paul, Paul is just saying, knock it off. Right? You're in Rome. You're at the center of the ancient world. You're at the center of the universe. Everything is available to you. You've got running water. You've got fresh running water. You've got hot baths. Right? They had everything that was available to them at the time. And he's saying, stop being trapped by it. Stop giving in to yourself and give in to Christ. Paul is constantly contrasting between the new life and the old. And this is fitting. We have an example of himself. So uh, in, the, in, the early, in the early, really parts of, of Christian history, um, in the New Testament, Paul is a persecutor. Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he believes he's on a mission from God to destroy this new cult that has popped up. And then what happens? He meets Jesus, literally, and, and he goes blind. And that was kind of stinky. But in that, his mind was changed. And I also want to point something out too. In the Bible, we read and we think, you know, it might take me an hour to read through Romans, maybe 45 minutes if I'm reading a little bit fast. And we read that and we read a book like, you know, Acts. And we think, man, this is all exciting. But in our minds, it's happening quickly. What we don't realize is what we call chapters and verses or pericopes. This sometimes represents months or years of their life. So you're not, you, you are transformed the once, right? You are renewed. You are a new person in Christ, but your sanctification continues. Sanctification is growing in holiness, right? You are regenerate. You are saved once and for all, as it were, but then you continue to grow in holiness, and part of that is through your mind. So Paul contrasts the old and the new. He says, before Christ, you were just like the world, but now you are to be just like him. Hard, but not impossible. None of us are never going to be Christ. He's Christ. And thank God for that. Right? I don't need to be a savior to anybody, and neither do you but we have him. We can also look at Peter. Uh, Peter is perhaps one of my, one of my favorites, uh, I hate to say it, but characters in, in the New Testament. And it's not for the great things that he does, but every time he messes up, I'm like, yeah, that's me. Yeah, I'm that way. You know, Peter's always the one that jumps headlong with sword drawn. Peter's the one that stepped out onto the water and then sank. Peter's the one that saw Jesus in, in his glory and then wanted to build altars, right? He's like, it's like an, a, an adventure and missing the point with Peter. And, but that's me, right? And I think that's a lot of us. And so what we get to see though, and here's the beauty of it, is through the gospel of Mark and then even through First um, and Second Peter and then even through Acts, we get to see how Peter is renewed. I mean, when the spirit comes on him, and gives him words, and through his life, he's able to say things like, I know you all are dying. I know there are persecutions. It's okay. Because you have Christ. He is your goal. The world may hate you. The culture may try to beat you down, but you have Christ. And this is the transforming. So this is the old versus the new, right? Peter's not so quick to draw the sword with a renewed mind. Peter's not so quick to jump headlong, but he focuses on Christ. So think about yourself and your life, the old versus the new. I kind of don't want to do that in my life. I think sometimes I still have more old than new. But think about how God has changed you. And then pray 
how he can continue to change you. I know you know your sins. I know you know your faults. Everybody does. They're at the top of your list, the top of your mind. Uh, probably most people are afraid to even discuss them because we don't want to be judged by each other, which is odd. Why shouldn't Christians discuss our faults and then prayerfully and diligently help each other there? But that's how we are because we're influenced by culture. We don't want to be shamed. Uh, you can't hardly you know, step out and do anything anymore without somebody blowing up uh, Facebook or you know, writing a blog or it's on the news. You can't do anything anymore. And we're influenced by that. We don't want to discuss you know, our sinful behaviors. Oh, they'll run me out of church. They'll, they won't talk to me anymore. I'll be that guy. I'll be that lady. So what? If that could get you closer to Christ, is it not worth a sacrifice? I say yes. So constantly looking at the old versus the new. So where does that leave us? Done a lot of talking. We've looked at the unsearchable mind of God and we've talked about what culture is and how we interact with it uh, and how we're not to interact with it. And, and, and let me, I said something earlier and let me come back to this. We are passing through this world. The term is sojourner. We're here for a time but not meant to stay. And we get so caught up in life. I do. I'm going to wake up and go to work tomorrow. I'm going to go earn a paycheck. I'm going to keep the lights on and food on the table and all that. That's just my paycheck. That's not who I am. What do you do? Well, I do a lot of things. Oh, yeah, but what's your job? Oh, what's my job? That's different. It's a different question. But we get caught in the trappings of life. And Jesus says, no, you're here for a time to do a very specific thing, which is preach the gospel and make disciples. Do that. Yeah, if you've got to earn a paycheck, earn your paycheck. Yeah, you've got to get the kids dressed in the morning, do that too. But do it to his glory. If you're out in the world, if you're talking to people, you have a chance to say a good word for Jesus. No matter what you're doing. You know, whether you're standing in line at the grocery store or, you know, actually at work. I, I work from home, so I don't, I disciple my kids. I yell at them mostly. Um, Be quiet, I'm on the phone. But, <laughs> but when you're out talking to people, you have a chance each and every day, each and every hour when you're out to say a good word for Jesus. And that's how it starts. You open the door. You make friends. Not every time, you know, there's this idea that every time you talk to somebody, uh, every time you do evangelism, which is, should be synonymous with breathing, Every time you do evangelism that, they're going to say, you know what, you're right. I am a sinner, and I need to be saved by grace. Probably not. Probably not. And that's okay, because we are relational people. And so you make friends, and you talk to people. And it's not just making friends so that you can share the gospel with them and then, you know, put a notch in your stick. No, be friends. Build relationships. Be that person in your neighborhood. Be that person in your workplace so that when something catastrophic happens, they're not thinking, I don't even know what to do. They're thinking, I know a Christian. And maybe they come to you. And maybe you can pray for them. Or maybe you can go to them and say, hey, I heard something happened and I know you don't believe the way I do. But I'm praying for you because my God is real. Maybe one day you'll understand how real he is right? Use those opportunities. There are times when the hearts easily move to reverence, uh, when we adore. We're moving into the Christmas season now, right? The, the, the old-timey songs are coming on the radio, and the lights are going up, and the weather's supposedly getting cooler. Um, and so we, our hearts soften a little bit, right? And this is when we get to see common grace, what we call common grace, the idea that God is present even in this evil world, we get to see this more, or maybe we notice it more. So people are a little kinder, they speak a little slower, and it's easy to give that adoration to God and say, this is a, this is a magnificent time. And I wonder if that's why so many people like Christmas. They say, it's my favorite time of the year, believer or unbeliever. 
because that's when people actually, that's when culture, I think, at least still, starts to act a little bit more like the church. So this is our opportunity in Christmas to magnify that. Think about that. So there are times when worship comes easily, just like what we're entering to now. It's easy to submit our whole selves, and we can say, God, it is you and only you, and I don't know what my next breath holds, but it's yours. That is pure worship, because you've turned from culture, you've turned from yourself, and given that to Christ. Think of the example when uh, think of the example when you know Jesus is preaching and his his mother and his brothers they come to get him and he's like nope not even them I would deny even them and this the point he was getting at and that's actually a very hard text to preach but the point he's getting at is you need to love me so much so much that it would seem you would deny everything else if it comes to that. We have it very easy in America. We don't have to deny ourselves of hardly anything. I've been to third world countries. I've, I've seen what it means to be poor. I understand. But here, we don't deny ourselves of very much. Or if we do, it's, it's, it's minimal. You have available what you need. So worship can be easy in that type of situation. There are other times when our minds are preoccupied with this present life, with work, again, with all of the various things that you might come across in the world. And worship is hard. Maybe you're going through a really hard spot in life. Maybe you haven't had work for a long time. Maybe there's family members that won't talk to you. Maybe there's family members you won't talk to. Fix that, by the way. You only have them for a time. But you may be going through a particularly hard spot at work. Whatever it is, worship is hard because it's not easy then. It doesn't come naturally. We have to work at it. And we're lazy. We don't want to work at anything. That's what Paul is saying here. Even then. Present yourselves as a pure and holy offering to him. So don't let the trappings of life confuse you about who you are and what your purpose is. God wants all of you, not just the parts you're willing to give up, not just the, think about when, you're, when, when you were a kid and even if you have kids, uh, you say, you know, they're arguing over something and you say, fine, just split it, Right? And it's like, well, who gets to split it? Because, you know, and in our house, we say one of you gets to split it, and then the other one gets to take their first pick. And then, you know, that's supposed to work. They still fight. Um, but the point is, right, you don't want part. You don't want the bad part. And God is saying, I will not take the bad part. I will not take the lesser of yourself. I will only have all of you. So give him all of you. James is helpful here. So in James 1.5, he talks about, you know, praying for wisdom and praying for guidance. And this is what we have to constantly do. Again, we are bombarded with information. We live in an age where everything is at your fingertips. You can, you can pick this up and find anything, anything. You can be sitting in a red light and learn the finer points of anything. You know, while you're waiting for that red light. Thanks, Wikipedia. Right? But all that information does nothing for you if you're not giving it back to Christ. So don't get bombarded. But James says, if you don't understand what to do, pray to God for the wisdom. And he will give it to you. Maybe you don't know what to pray. Pray for that. Start there. Right? If you want to get to point D, you've got to back into it. So you start at the end and say, how do I get to C, okay? How do I get to C from B? How do I get to B from A? And then that will give you the path. And the Christian life is a lot like that. Our goal is Christ. If we are seeking wisdom in a certain area of life, pray for it. 
back into it. Think about what the goal is. How can I most glorify Christ? And then back into it from there. So James is helpful here in backing up what Paul is saying. And sometimes, too, uh, it's helpful to hear Scripture read in another way. Uh, my wife will make fun of me. She always makes fun of me. Um, but in the message translation, I think it points out here something very, very cool in Romans 12, too. So I'm going to read it to you, uh, and I hope that it, it blesses you. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around, and place it before God as an offering. Embrace what God does for you. It is the best that you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. It's the key. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants you to do and quickly respond to it. It's the second key. Quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you, which you are to then give back to him. Nothing you have, including yourself, is yours. Nothing. He bought you with a price. You're not yours. You don't have the right to say, I will give you some, but not all. The only right you have is to submit to him because you are not yours. We're freed from the tyranny of going with the flow because of the work on the cross. It seems like it's easy to go with the flow in the culture, to be bent to it, to be conformed by it. And certainly we all are. But it doesn't have to be that way. We constantly are fighting against our sin nature. We're constantly trying to turn ourselves away from our flesh and towards Christ. That's what we do in this life. We preach the word and we seek after him. It's hard to intuit God's will and it's hard to do, it's hard to even think this way when you're involved in sinful behaviors. And I don't mean like the big ones. I mean the fact that you're just greedy with your time, including giving it to God. I'll confess to you, it is hard to pick up my Bible and read it just because I think there's a dozen other things I could be doing. And I suspect that's true in a lot of your lives. We live in a hyper-literate culture where we have, I, I don't know how many Bibles I have at my house, actually. I don't, you know, and if I didn't have it, I could pick it up here, right? I have, I have all the translations on my phone. So it's easy for us to discard and say, well, it's there if I need it, you know, if I need it, right? As if that's, not, that's a sometimes occurrence. But don't let it be that way. Don't, don't be double-minded in your worship. One of the ways that we worship is, of course, through, through singing of songs, through prayer, and through reading of Scripture. This is how we find the mind of God. The Bible does not contain everything about the world, but it contains everything we need to know about God and Jesus. What we need to know is here. Is there more? Certainly. But God does not see it important enough to give it to us. This is what we have. This is what he wants us to have. Don't take your Bible for granted. Do not take the importance of Scripture for granted. So really, when we trust Christ, our minds are changed. So if you're sitting here, really, this day, right now, this moment, you have a choice. I'm standing up here. You're sitting there. We all have a choice right now on what we're going to do with our minds. Will we completely submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And in that I mean, will we acknowledge that we have no other choice, no other dignity in our lives than to give it all to him? Or are we going to continue uh, to kind of search after our own selfish whims and, and seek validation from people we don't know? Right, this is the crux of the Christian life. 
Friend, if you're sitting here and have no idea about who this Jesus is I'm talking about, this is it, is that you give yourself to him. Instead of giving yourself to everything else and everybody else, you're giving yourself to him. And I know that seems scary. I've been a believer a long time, and sometimes it still scares me. But the point is, every person on the earth, whatever gender they might or might not identify themselves with, is still just one thing, which is a sinner. So what are you going to do with that? The gospel is a pretty simple equation. There's two variables, right? You're either going to spend an eternity with Christ, glorifying him in pure worship, truly pure worship, because he will be the culture. Think about that. And when you go home, that's cool. Christ would be our culture. Or you're going to spend an eternity without him, given over to your own sin and darkness. What's that going to be? The world will lead you to one path, and Christ will lead you to himself. Let's pray.